If you went to a state university, as I did, you will most likely have some opinion on what I am about to share with you today. But indulge me to explain it to those who might not be aware. Have you ever heard that the 1973 Pink Floyd album, The Dark Side of the Moon, perfectly syncs up to the classic 1939 MGM movie, The Wizard of Oz, in significant ways? It is known as Dark Side of the Rainbow, Dark Side of Oz, or The Wizard of Floyd. This synchronicity was brought to national attention via the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette in 1995 and blew up into legend from there when a Boston disc jockey named George Morris brought the mythos to his audience, causing the forensic team at MTV News to follow up. Synchronicity, also the name of a great album by the police, was first brought to the attention of the public by psychiatrist Carl Jung, who defined the phenomenon as an occurrence when events, quote, seem related, but are not explained by conventional mechanisms of causality, end quote. Simply put, your brain makes sense of the parts that line up in a desired way, while ignoring the elements that do not have any connection at all, commonly known as confirmation bias. And I know from experience that there are far more inconsistencies than parallels when viewing Dark Side of the Rainbow. But, depending on how badly you want it to work, the parallels might appear to outweigh the inconsistencies. What amazes me is the fact that some people insist that all of this was done intentionally even after learning that members of Pink Floyd contend that it is a complete coincidence and the two pieces of entertainment are entirely unrelated. David Gilmore, guitarist and singer of Pink Floyd, said of the craze, quote, Some guy with too much time on his hands had this idea of combining Wizard of Oz with Dark Side of the Moon, end quote. And drummer Nick Mason remarked to MTV, quote, It's absolute nonsense. It has nothing to do with The Wizard of Oz. It was all based on the sound of music, end quote. I'm glad he has a sense of humor about it, at least. A major issue that anyone viewing the movie in this manner encounters is the fact that The Wizard of Oz is an hour and 40 minutes long, while Dark Side of the Moon is under 45 minutes. Therefore, you must set the album to play on repeat. But enthusiasts and stoners abide and swear that not only is Dark Side of Oz intentional and real, but that you can do the same thing with other Pink Floyd works. For example, the song Echoes is supposed to enhance a section of the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey called 
Jupiter, and beyond the infinite, as both are conveniently 23 minutes in length. Pink Floyd's The Wall is supposed to be paired with Pixar's Wall-E, branded another brick in the Wall-E, and Sid Barrett's record The Madcap Laughs is said to work with Disney's Alice in Wonderland. Other band movie combinations with supposed synchronicity are Rich Aukoin's Ephemeral paired with the claymation film The Little Prince, and Ghost Rhythm's album Madeline is to be played under Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Scatter curiosity, in the summer of 2000, Turner Classic Movies aired The Wizard of Oz underscored by the dark side of the moon. And they could do it because Turner bought the rights to MGM in 1986. More on that later. So, what are you supposed to see? A hell of a whole lot if the internet is to be believed. Here is a mere handful of the significant sinks to be found. First time through the album, the song Speak to Me, Breathe goes, quote, Look around and choose your own ground, end quote, as Dorothy is looking around the grounds of the farm for someone to talk to and confides in the ranch hands, Hunk, Zeke, and Hickory. Then you have the lyrics, Long you live and high you fly, but only if you ride the tide and balanced on the biggest wave, you race towards an early grave. And it lays in the underscore as Dorothy chats with Zeke while balance beam walking on the fence of the pig pen where she falls in. A cacophony of sounds leads us to the song On the Run as Zeke runs to rescue Dorothy from the pig pen. And at the point in the track that you faintly hear a woman's voice listing airport flights, Dorothy is talking about running away and as airplanes fly and crash in the background, Dorothy sings about birds flying over the rainbow. There is an appropriate ticking sound that occurs within the song Time when Miss Gulch rides her bike to the Gale farmhouse. The music chimes like a doorbell when Miss Gulch meets Uncle Henry at the farm gate. And the lyric, kicking around on a piece of ground in your hometown, waiting for someone or something to show you the way, is heard when Toto jumps out of Miss Gulch's bike basket, and soon after, Professor Marvel is showing Dorothy visions of Auntie M crying about the girl having run away over the soundtrack's quote, Home, home again, I like to be here when I can, end quote. And Dorothy rushes home. The guitar of the great gig in the sky swells when the fearsome Kansas twister is seen in the far-off distance. And throughout the sequence, the vocals are chaotic and full of uncertainty, 
just like the impending storm. The most significant combo in The Wizard of Floyd, in my opinion, comes with the Pink Floyd anthem, Money. After the tornado has swept Dorothy's house away and it finally lands, the in-tempo cash register is heard and carries through until she opens the door and steps out of her sepia-toned home into the brilliantly technicolored land of Oz. And that is when the funky bass line buzzes in. Amid the lyric, Money Get Back, Dorothy has her back turned to the munchkins. For Money It's a Crime, the munchkins sing, We thank you very sweetly, you've killed her so completely. Referring to Dorothy smushing the Wicked Witch of the East, a crime in any land. And away, away, away happens as the munchkins sing below, below, below. The Lullaby League makes its adorable entrance in the ballad Us and Them, and they are the Us, 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 Black and Blue is sung while the Wicked Witch, dressed in black, faces off with Dorothy for the first time, dressed in blue. And then Dark Side of the Moon goes, and who knows which is which, and who is who. And what you see on camera is the Wicked Witch of the West, popularly known as Elphaba Throp, Mamba, Mambi, Bastinda, Smarmy, Eveline, Old Snarl Spats, Azcadelia, Billy Westbrook, Fedora, Lanessa, and Zelina. And then you also see the Wicked Witch of the East, her house-flattened sister, who also remains nameless in the film, but has been referred to as Gingama, Evamine, Rebecca Eastwitch, Nessarose Throp, Old Sandai, Diana, East, and Evanora. And then you have Glinda, the Good Witch of the North. Though in the L. Frank Baum book, Glinda is the Good Witch of the South. And then Floyd vocalizes down, down, down as Dorothy looks down at the yellow brick road, and then out, 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 when Glinda disappears in her bubble. A poignant recitation of Pink Floyd's brain damage occurs with the lyrics, The lunatic is on the grass, Remembering games and daisy chains and laughs, Got to keep the loonies on the path. End quote. Meanwhile, the scarecrow sings, if I only had a brain, and dances maniacally on the path of the yellow brick road. And as the song Eclipse sounds, quote, all you create, all you destroy, all that you do, all that you say, all that you eat, and everyone you meet, end quote, Dorothy and the Scarecrow meet the Tin Man former munchkin Nick Chopper, 
who expresses his desire for a heart while a heartbeat is heard in the music. Are you ready to hear the album again? Here we go. For the second spin of Speak to Me, Breathe, quote, Run, Rabbit, Run, end quote, is sung as the Wicked Witch throws a ball of fire at the Scarecrow, who runs and hops about frantically, the rabbit, before being put out by the Tin Man. This time, the airport announcements refer to the gang flying off, as it were, to see the wizard. In this round, the alarm clock in the song Time rings through the cowardly lion's admission of scaring himself sometimes, and the album sings, quote, Far away across the field, the tolling of the iron bell calls the faithful to their knees to hear the softly spoken magic bells. End quote. And what we see is the group crossing a field to the Emerald City and the Scarecrow falls to his knees on the word knees. And the cash register in the song Money chimes about as the group talks about how awesome it will be when the wizard finally gives them what they want. For us and them, Us, Us, Us portrays Dorothy and the boys, and Them, Them, Them is the fiery giant wizard head. In the interim of, quote, With, Without, and Who'll Deny It's What the Fighting's All About, end quote, the flying monkeys take Dorothy and Toto, leading to, quote, for want of the price of a tea and a slice, the old man died, end quote, when old Snarl Spats demands the ruby slippers and threatens Toto's life, the old man, if Dorothy does not comply, even though the movie clearly stated earlier that the slippers cannot be removed while the teenager is still alive. You lock the door and throw away the key from brain damage carries us to Dorothy being locked in a room of Bestinda's castle. The bass drum beats in time with the Tin Man chopping the door that Dorothy is locked behind during the course of the second run of Eclipse and as Cadelia vows to destroy everyone as your speakers spew the words, all you destroy. Do you want to listen to the album again? If not, there are laser light shows that are intended to go along with the release, and they are far more trippy. And you don't have to listen to the cut three times in a row. But... If you are into torture tactics, let's listen to Speak to Me Breathe once more, where this time the heartbeat is heard when the scarecrow is set on fire again and Dorothy puts him out with a foolishly placed nearby bucket of water which kills Elphaba Throp. The planes flying over and crashing from on the run 
occur as the wizard talks about his hot air balloon crashing him in Oz. Glinda tells Dorothy to click her heels three times to get home during the, quote, waiting for someone or something to show you the way portion of the song Time. And when Dorothy wakes up from her dream, the reprise of Breathe sounds the lyrics, quote, Home, home again, I like to be here when I can. When I come home cold and tired, it's good to warm my bones beside the fire, far away across the field, end quote. And what we see is Auntie M presiding over the girl alongside the Scarecrow and Tin Man's alter egos, Hunk and Hickory, who kneel next to Dorothy's bed as Pink Floyd paints a picture of the faithful going to their knees. And that is just a sampling of what you are supposed to see while watching The Wizard of Floyd. Arguments are aplenty as to when the soundtrack is to be cued to sync up properly to the movie, a majority of which use Lucky Leo the MGM Lion to establish a starting point. The most popular claim is that the album should be started on the third Lion Roar, while others embrace the first or second roar. And yet even another theory is that the music should not be started until the lion fades to black and the movie starts. No matter how you do it, and I know that all of you are going to try it now, the lion has significance in all MGM films, not just with Lucky Leo and The Wizard of Floyd. At the forefront of the Roaring Twenties, Marcus Lowe bought Metro Pictures in the interest of putting those films into his Lowe's movie theaters. Lowe soon realized that his movie houses needed to be readily stocked with entertainment, so Marcus went out and acquired Goldwyn Pictures and Mayer Pictures in 1924 and put Louis B. Mayer in charge of the newly formed Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Production Company, MGM. And in just two years, the studio made over 100 films. One of them was Ben-Hur, not the one you're thinking of, which brought in a hefty... $4.7 million in profits. By the time that Marcus Lowe died, Samuel Goldwyn had already left the company and sued it for use of his name. 
the Fox Film Corporation took interest in buying Lowe's personal holdings, but Lewis Mayer had connections in the California Republican Party who stood in the way of the purchase via the Justice Department, which cited Fox with breaking antitrust laws, something we learned all about in our Season 1 episode of Scattered Curiosities, Emperors, Robber Barons, Cowboys, and Indians Part 2. And the acquisition was halted further in 1929 when William Fox got himself into a car crash and by the time he recovered from his injuries, the stock market crashed in addition to the crash of his prospect of owning Lowe's Theatres. Louis Mayer and Irving Thalberg, Mayer's head of production, formerly of Universal Pictures, now known as Universal Studios, got right to making movie stars out of Joan Crawford and Greta Garbo and renting stars from other studios like Buster Keaton and Lon Chaney. With the advent of talkies, MGM gave us classic cinema starring Gene Harlow, Spencer Tracy, Nelson Eddy, and, of course, the frankly not giving a damn Clark Gable. The studio was a pioneer in the early two-tone version of Technicolor as far back as 1923 and was the first to combine Technicolor with sound, but not dialogue. And they, of course, made use of the superior three-tone Technicolor type that made The Wizard of Oz so famously vibrant. Interestingly enough, MGM was the last studio to jump on the talking movie bandwagon with their 1930 musical, The Rogue Song. Irving Thalberg died in 1936, leaving Louis Mayer as head of production who filled Irving's shoes with Mervyn Leroy, who had come from Warner Brothers, along with the brilliant idea to buy the rights to The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. And it cost MGM Studios $75,000 in 1938, the same year the studio bought The Little Rascals, Our Gang. And The Wizard of Oz was released the very next year alongside another mega-classic book and MGM film, Gone with the Wind. Now, I'm no Albert Einstein, but I speculate that the speed in which they brought The Wizard of Oz to life accounts for a ton of continuity errors throughout the film. And if you are interested, look them up online because they are way too plentiful to list. But here are a couple of errors that are hard to look past. First off, when Glinda first meets Dorothy, she asks her, are you a good witch or a bad witch? Yet Glinda later explains that 
Only bad witches are ugly. Since Dorothy is, at the very least, as pretty as the good witch, maybe prettier, Glinda should have just asked, Are you a witch? For the cowardly lions, if I were the king of the forest, he asks, quote, What makes the Sphinx the seventh wonder? End quote. However, it is the Great Pyramid of Giza that is the seventh of the ancient world's wonders, not the Sphinx. After the Scarecrow gets his brains in the form of a diploma from the wizard, he incorrectly cites, quote, The sum of the square roots of any two sides of an isosceles triangle is equal to the square root of the remaining side, end quote. But Pythagorean theorem refers to right angles, not isosceles ones. And shortly thereafter, the wizard calls the Tin Man, quote, my galvanized friend, end quote. But galvanization is a process whereby metal is coated with zinc to keep it from rusting. Furthermore, tin doesn't rust. It oxidizes. Sorry, B-52s. Aside from these picky errors, we all think of The Wizard of Oz as being this super successful movie that everyone has seen. So it may surprise you to learn that it actually took two decades before the studio made a profit on the film, which caused MGM to cut loose some expensive assets, like Greta Garbo, Joan Crawford, who wound up at Warner Brothers, and eventually, Louis Mayer, the man at the top, was shown the exit door by the MGM executives. In 1956, CBS acquired the television rights to air The Wizard of Oz, and it became the first fictional American movie to be shown in one night on a major network in primetime. And three years later, annual television screenings of The Wizard of Oz became a tradition. Now, MGM Studios has long used Ars Gratia Artis, or Arts for Art's Sake, as its credo, and at one time boasted that it had, quote, more stars than there are in heaven, end quote. But perhaps their most utilized star would be the representative of their logo and the cue to start the Wizard of Floyd, Leo the Lion, plural. You see, MGM has used six different lions over the years, each one being used for specific types of films, and only one of them was actually named Leo. The logo was created by Howard Dietz, a Columbia University alumnus, who was inspired by his college mascot's fight song, Roar, Lion, Roar. Despite the fact 
that MGM's first lion, Slat, did not roar in the footage that was used. Slat, originally named Caribre, was born at the Dublin Zoo a year after fighting ceased in World War I. And he is the big cat that you see on every black and white MGM movie between 1924 and 1928. And he made his debut preceding the movie He Who Gets Slapped. Slats died at age 17, but his hide resides at a museum in McPherson, Kansas that you can go visit today. Book those flights. Jackie was the second MGM lion and the first one to roar. However, the sound of Jackie's three roars was recorded after the filming and had to be played through a gramophone for MGM's first sound film, White Shadows in the South Seas. Jackie is featured at the top of MGM black and white movies between 1928 and 1956, apart from being sepia-toned before the 1939 classic The Wizard of Oz. Though Jackie can be seen in color at the beginning of the 1934 movie Babes in Toyland, a.k.a. March of the Wooden Soldiers. But Jackie was not just a spokeslion for MGM. He was a bona fide movie star with over 100 films to his credit. He was a series regular on all of Johnny Weissmuller's Tarzan movies and even did a photo shoot with a seemingly disenthused Greta Garbo, a very gettable picture on the internet. Jackie was nicknamed Leo the Lucky because in his lifetime, the feline endured two train accidents a studio explosion, and was on board a plane that crashed in Arizona, leaving the beast alone for four days while the pilot went off to get help. He reportedly left Jackie sandwiches to eat. Telly and Coffee were the next two lions of the MGM pack, both with short tenures opening two-tone Technicolor shorts and cartoons. Telly is the cat from 1928 to 1932, and Coffee from 1932 to 1934, with the exception of the Happy Harmonies cartoons in 1935, and right up until three-strip Technicolor, was adopted by the studio. And the lion to film classifications can get a bit confusing from time to time because of movies like MGM's 1934, The Cat in the Fiddle, which has a few moments that are filmed in color, but because most of the movie and logo are in black and white, Jackie is the lion that is utilized. 
And for most telly and coffee movies, the lions roar twice. But MGM did have an extended version, and in 1928's The Viking and 1932's Wild People, the respective lions roared three times. Quick, cue up Dark Side of the Moon. Between 1934 and 1956, MGM was fully using three-strip Technicolor and decided to upgrade their Leo the Lion as well with a furry guy named Tanner whose first time introducing a movie was a short titled Star Night at the Coconut Grove. And when people refer to films from the golden age of Hollywood, Tanner would have been the lion in question. Now, The Wizard of Oz was shot in this time frame, but because of the sepia-toned black and white elements, the studio decided to go retro with the use of Jackie instead of Tanner. And the same holds true for the 1941 movie, Third Dimensional Murder, which not only had Technicolor, but also 3D sequences. However, the beginning credits are in black and white. Ergo, Jackie is the lion scene. This is also the case at the beginning of The Picture of Dorian Gray in 1945 and The Secret Garden in 1949. Tanner is the lion actor in the Three Stooges classic, Hold That Lion, and his roar is featured in several MGM cartoons as a sound effect for animated lions. George the Lion took over for Tanner and had this bitchin' mane of hair, much more impressive than any of the other lions, yet he was only employed for two years, also using Tanner's roars. Leo is the actual name of the next MGM lion, who was also born in the Dublin Zoo, just like the first lion, Slats. And Leo has been the logo for 60-plus years. Though it should be noted that MGM did use Tanner again in this time frame for Tom and Jerry shorts that were directed by Chuck Jones between 1963 and 1967. Leo was the youngest lion at the time he was filmed. Therefore, his mane of hair is far less prominent than his predecessor, George. And as part of the long tradition of MGM lions that could have an IMDb page for acting, Leo's resume includes the films Napoleon and Samantha, Fluffy, King of Kings, and Zebra in the Kitchen, as well as a notable commercial for Dreyfus Investments and the television show The Pet Set, where on one episode, a blind teenage girl pets the tamed creature. 
The first version featuring Leo includes three roars, but it was only used until 1960 because MGM favored the classic two-roar sequence. And the evolution of the roar is itself an interesting one. Some MGM films just have a still frame of the lion with no roar, like Ben-Hur, because the director argued that a lion's roar would set a strange tone for a film that begins with a nativity scene. MGM used its roarless, stylized lion just three times in the mid to late 1960s for its films, Grand Prix, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and The Subject Was Roses. But this version of the logo still survives today as part of the studio's print logo, MGM Records logo, at the end of film credits until the year 1982, and perhaps most notably, as the logo for MGM Grand Casinos. The Lion Roar was remixed for 1982's Poltergeist by blending old roars with tiger noises. Because according to an MGM sound engineer, quote, Lions don't make that kind of ferocious noise, and the logo needed to be ferocious and majestic, end quote. The same engineer would remix the roar 13 years later that included many previous roar samples combined. The new roar made its voice heard on the famously unprofitable Cutthroat Island starring Gina Davis and Matthew Modine, which, adjusted for inflation from 1995, lost nearly $147 million. And I worked at a blockbuster video when this stinker came out, and not one employee or customer claimed the posters or the promotional cardboard stand-ups once the store was done with them. One of my favorite aspects of working at a video store in the 1990s. I suppose technically there are seven MGM lions because there is an unidentified lion featured at the top of the 1983 Rick Moranis Dave Thomas movie Strange Brew, in which the lion burps as the characters Bob and Doug McKenzie attempt to get the seemingly intoxicated lion to roar. And Doug suggests, quote, maybe I ought to crank his tail, eh? That ought to start him up, end quote. Which he does, as Bob notices, quote, ah, geez, he's getting mad, eh? End quote. Then the Canucks realize that the movie has started, and they run into the Great White North, as the lion finally roars off-screen with the remixed 1982 roar, which is buttoned by Bob saying, quote, geez, now that hoser's growling, end quote. 
And who would have thought back in 1983 that Canada, America's hat, would one day outproduce Hollywood studios like MGM in the filmmaking industry? Perhaps Leo's luck has run out, eh? us keep the curiosities coming please rate us on itunes soundcloud or your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to visit scatteredcuriosities.com for exclusive free downloads and to donate to the show